together so well. I, I love yeah. Thorn and Cross and Pierce. Thorn and Cross yeah. and Pierce. It sounds violent. It we really get it done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. All right. So well, without further ado, welcome to the show, Q. Um, it's, all, it's all you. All right. Well, thank you. That was lovely. And uh, tonight we will be chatting with author Briarly Mitchell and author illustrator Jack Keeley. And they are the collaborative team behind the Whistlebrass Mysteries. And um, tonight we're going to be hearing a little bit from book three, which is uh, soon to be released. But I thought that what we might do is um, first get to know Briar and Jack a little better. So, Briar, I'll start with you. All According right. According to your bio... You have been an illustrator and a writer. You've exhibited in the Smithsonian, worked for Warner Brothers and Disney, and have been able to travel the world with the Air Force, creating works of art for the National Archives. And Mm -hmm. with them, you went to McMurdo Base in the Antarctic, along with James Cameron, which all of that is incredibly fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have to tell you, I am I, I'm one of those people that has to be knocked out and carried onto a plane in order to fly anywhere. And I was um, looking at your blog, and there was this story that you wrote about um, a flight from Christchurch to McMurdo when the landing gear wasn't working. And that's 
scared me to pieces. So I thought maybe we'd start with a little blood pumping with a story of that tonight. I, I agree. I think that's wonderful to start a show with a near-death experience. I think that's the awesome way to, to get to it. know somebody. You survived. Awesome. Now let's talk about your book. Um <laughs> I was actually already down at McMurdo, and I was with the 22nd Airlift Squadron. Uh, we It's really hard getting in and out of the Antarctic because you are constantly battling storms. So literally, we'd be sitting around waiting, and then they would say, okay, go, go. We'd run to the airplane <laughs> because we could get in and out beating the storm. So we were down there. We had a very short amount of time. It was a risky flight. To begin with, we were picking up um, a man who was working there, actually one of the staff members of McMurdo. He was operating a pneumatic drill, and it backfired and hit him in the chin, broke his jaw and his neck. And he'd been already strapped down to a backboard for nearly 24 hours before we could even get to him. So we got down there and loaded him up, and the flight back from McMurdo to Christchurch is about six and a half hours. And an hour out, uh, we ran into trouble. And by then, we had crossed over into night. You know, it was always daylight in the Antarctica. We'd already come into night. It was dark. The plane was buffeted because we were also coming into a very bad storm. Um, this just sounds this sounds like a, a formula script. <laughs> what the hell happened to it? <laughs> we... Um, uh, I ran to the back, you know, here I am the artist on board, not a, you know, crew member or an engineer or anything. So they gave me the flashlight to hold. So I'm standing in the back of the plane holding a flashlight while they're trying desperately, really desperately to fix it. And what had happened was one of the hydraulic systems had developed a leak and was running out of the back of the jet. And this was the one that powered down the wheels. So there was no way to power the wheels down except by hand. So we had to drop down below compression altitude. These guys actually stuck a hole, a pole through a hole in the side of the plane. And it took 20 minutes for each wheel to pump them down by hand and then lock them into place so they wouldn't fold up when we landed. Um, the Air Force there in New Zealand said, you know, don't, don't try it because there's high winds, you're, you're flying in a broken plane you know, divert to this landing strip offshore, which was on this little island that um, had been used during World War II and hadn't really been used much since then. They had a kind of serviceable runway, but at least there wasn't a storm there. We could land there and live in the plane for two days until they could get out to us. But we had an injured man on board, and there was just, you know, the pilot said, we're going to go for it. So they did. We came in just, Wow. <laughs> we were tossed around inside there like like beans in a tin can and uh there was only one window in the back of the plane and the guys I was flying with uh were so nice they they put me up by the window so that I could be the first to get out but it also meant I could see what was happening and as we came down every single emergency vehicle paced us going down the runway until we landed and the pilot said, you know, evacuate. We opened the door and instead of very carefully lifting out this injured man and going out the back of the plane, we just rammed him down through the doorway and into an ambulance and he was gone on the way to the hospital before the last of us evacuated the plane. And so what do you think we did? Why? No, what, what do you think we did then? 
I'm not going to guess. I'm not gonna guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> over to the nearest Ramada and had a beer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, hey, we made it. We survived. Okay. All right. I'm going to have a Pilsner, and he's going to have with us. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. We did find out the next morning, though, the guy, thanks, didn't have a broken neck. So we survived, and I did have my hair literally standing on end. So there you go, QL. There's the oh, story. Thank you very much for the story. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking in New Zealand earlier about the fact that you're you're going to fly to uh, Singapore in not too long from now. So I I hope that you uh, have a a nice flight. <laughs> I I hope so too. I I I'm not as afraid of um, flying as I used to be. I took a a an, a flying lesson once. I had a friend whose oh. husband taught airplane or how to fly airplanes and she said, Do you want to take a flying lesson? And I thought, sure, why not? So I sat and it was like one of those driving uh class cars with two steering wheels. So I wasn't the only person who was flying the plane, but you know, he would say, you know, move this lever and we'll go up and and move this lever and we'll go to the right or whatever. And it really helped me get rid of my fear of flying because I just assumed that airplanes stayed in the air because of magic, and I had, and once I learned that, there, that once you know once I really there really was science behind why they're up in the air, it was a little less scary. So yeah, I I took a, a chance one time and went with someone that had a little private plane, and uh, he said, you know, if we, you just we'll fly around the airport a little bit, you'll be fine. The minute we took off, I started with. Can we land now? Can we land now? Can we land now? <laughs> well, that was I, it. I, I did think it was fun, although the plane was so little, it was kind of like you know flying in a sports car or something. It, it was, oh, it, wow. was <laughs> it was a little intimidating because of that. I just thought this is so little and we're up in the air, but it sounds it, it like Barbie's worked. plane. It, yes, it was. It was. A, it was like something that had dislodged itself from a fairground and just kept going. I can tell from uh, Tamara's giggling that she's got the cast of airplane in her head. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jack, let's, let's talk about your uh, illustration, okay? Um, I understand that you have illustrated over 30 children's books, and, uh, of course, the uh, one that really stands out is Grossology. Every kid loves Grossology. And uh, the L.A. Times said, Jack Keeley's wonderful illustrations perfectly capture the charming and slightly subversive attitude of the enterprise. Um, so what made you decide to become an artist, and how has your uh, style evolved over the years? Well, um I basically decided to become an artist because I couldn't do anything else. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it was, it was sort of, um, I had, I had one skill that sort of stood out, and I thought, well, this is, this is good. So, and I enjoyed it, and and um, uh, and I pursued it. I, I had a very odd childhood because I'm extremely nearsighted, but for some weird combination of reasons, they didn't determine that until I was 12. So. Doing normal things like catching a ball seemed impossible to me, but I could sit there hunched over a piece of paper and draw whatever I wanted to draw. So I, I, uh-huh. I wound up getting addicted to drawing, and 
um, just loved it, and my parents were enthusiastic. Um, I, I, so I, I just continued on. I studied the illustration and and uh, wound up, you know, as you said, um, getting involved with these children's books, and it was it was a lot of fun, you because know, you you never knew which you know what kind of theme there would be, and uh, grossology was kind of a shocker because the subject matter was so bizarre, you know, you know things that come out of your nose and smells and yeah. all sorts of horrible, <laughs> disgusting things. And the challenge there was to draw it in a way that was funny and kind of, you know, icky enough to appeal to to kids, but not so disgusting that their parents would refuse to buy the book. So. Uh, <laughs> And it, and it was and it, and it turned out to be quite an adventure because Grossology then spawned sequels. Grossology begins at home, Animal Grossology, Grossology and You, and on and on and on. There were several books. There was a video game. There's a traveling museum exhibition. There's a, a, a planetarium movie that you know wound up using my drawing. So it's been a lot of fun. And it was a it was it was it definitely is the book that has had the most mileage. Of anything I've done. You, yeah, although you do all sorts of different uh, styles or, or uh, kinds of artwork, you really seem to favor pen and ink. What is it about that that really draws you? Um, I love to do pen and ink, and, and nowadays, you know, I used to always color everything with watercolor or marker, and now I usually, when I add color, I use a computer and do it digitally, but I love pen and ink. Um, it's so immediate. Um, you know, and I, I have all different kinds of pens I like to use, you know, old-fashioned dip pens and bottles of ink and technical rapidograph pens and felt-tip pens. But I, I love the line. I love the quality of line you can you can get. And it's just, it's always appealed to me. And I think that that comes out of, a, you know, a love of comic books and the linear style of art in comic books. And then uh-huh. it sort of continued from there. But I, I, I actually do think that, you know, I, I so enjoyed comic books when I was a child that... Um, my love of line came out of those drawings. And also, uh, pen and ink, when you have, like, a, a, you're illustrating a scary story or book, pen and ink drawings just really seem to uh, be more frightening so often, you know, than... Well, I think I think they, they can, and, and also, I am... I'm, I'm, I tend to be really impatient when it comes to my drawings. I want to see them done, and so I'm, I'm way too impatient for oil painting. But a pen and ink drawing I can do pretty quickly. So, um, Briar, I, I read that your first favorite book was The Hunt for Red October. That's, that's an unusual first favorite book for a child. So what drew you to that story? Uh, I was coming back on, from a trip with my dad, and uh, he pulled it out of his briefcase. He had just finished it, and he said, "Here, I liked this." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I took the book, and I just couldn't put it down after I started reading. I was so caught up in the telling of the story that uh, I really loved it, and it just never left my mind how overwhelmed I was and amazed with the storytelling. It was really a good book. Yeah, if you guys want to read a good book, that's pretty darn good. So the pacing and everything was what really drew you in? It was. I mean, it was a very unusual story, and I'd never really read a military kind of a story before. It mm-hmm. wasn't really, you know, it didn't have a unicorn in it, and um, <laughs> it didn't have any elves. 
why my dad gave it to me, I'll never know. Maybe he just wanted to get well. it out of his briefcase. You know, he was weighing him down. Oh, but my one of my daughters is here. I'll give it to her. Uh, who, who knows? But it was really delightful, and I thanked him for giving it to me. And I, you know, pay it forward. I gave it to somebody else when I was finished with it. Oh, no, well, that's the books are supposed to do that. They're mm-hmm. supposed to have lives, lives, you know. And you, <laughs> you wrote a book called, uh, for adults called Apparition. Yeah. And your main character is uh, a skeptical reporter who has to join a group of ghost hunters uh, in a haunted hotel to save his fiance. Have you ever been to a haunted site, or did, did you just, you know, invent the entire thing or was there anything that inspired you oh that's a fun question um i have been in a haunted castle i spent the night in castle stewart which is in um inverness scotland and uh we were there kind of off season a friend of mine and i flew out of los angeles and decided that it was colder in la than scotland so we were going to go to scotland for a few days and stayed in this hotel, and because it was off-season, the owner got dinner for us and showed us where our room was up in the turret. said, okay, the castle is yours, and off he went. And it was just two of us in the castle. I heard every noise, footstep breathing, howling, furniture moving, nice. you name it. My friend fell asleep. I could have killed her. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> And I was like, what was that? oh, my God, what was that? <laughs> so in the morning, I'm left having to describe to her what what these sounds like. And, of course, it was completely retarded sounding. Well, it made a noise like this. Oh, okay, well, that's really scary. <laughs> but the hotel I wrote it on is based on one I actually was at in New Zealand uh, that was supposed to be haunted, but I was just there for the afternoon. I don't know if it was or not, but it was a really freaking weird hotel. So I kind of based it on that and the experience of okay. being in the castle and whatnot. <laughs> are, are you open-minded about ghosts, or is it something you don't you don't think is true, or how do you feel about um, that? I'm not really sure they exist, but I really have an open mind. Uh, I love watching the TV shows, you know, about the, these people with the modern equipment, and they go and look ghosts and scream and jump around. Uh, the, you know, we're all kind of spiritual creatures, so I think that definitely there could be something out there. Okay. Now, now this question is for both of you. Um, you've collaborated on several books now, so uh, how do you influence each other and uh, how does your collaboration work? How do you work together? Mm-hmm. Jack, you should start that off because this series was your idea. Well, it, 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 the, what happened was Briar had given me a copy, actually, of Apparitions, and I said, oh, we should you know, do a book together. And she wasn't really sure how that would work, and we wound up experimenting a little bit. And basically what tended to happen um, was Briar is great at crafting a plot, and she would zip, zip along, and, and um, she'd come up with these, intriguing twists of the plot and um and then she'd give it to me and i like to play with words and i tend to add humor into things and so you know i would come up with uh you know different ways of 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 uh 
saying something on the page or, you know, characters' names. You know, I, I love inventing character, you know, the names of the characters and the names of the streets and the names of the stores and the restaurants. And I had this idea initially um, of something that took place in a spooky little town because I grew up in a spooky little town. And, um, you know, but that's that's how it, that's how it seems to go. It, and it developed into a pretty um, smooth workflow. You know, Briar and I would, you know, we'd get together and talk about a general idea. I think this could happen and this could happen. And then um, Briar would go off and, and work on a chapter and send it to me, and then I'd do my version and send it to her, and and, and yeah. mm-hmm. would just keep going along. And every now and then, um, she'd send me a chapter where something uh, completely unexpected would happen, and and uh, and that's really fun too. So there's a you know there'll there'll be a total surprise. Um, <laughs> at, at one point, I had you know the in the initial talk, one of the characters had gotten a glimpse of one of the creatures that was lurking in the town and when Briar sent me uh, back the chapter it was chasing her through the streets and Briar said well you wanted her to have something to do so I, I got her involved <laughs> uh, but uh, so it, it's, it's, it, it's been a lot of fun and, and I think especially because writing and illustrating tend to be solitary pursuits so when you find somebody that it's fun to bounce things off of and I, I've never actually done collaborative illustrations but you know collaborative the collaborative stories has been really fun to do okay. and Briar do you any of your thoughts on that uh, I think Jack covered it really well I was so surprised when he asked me to uh, collaborate with him we were both teaching at the same university together and um, I was uh, so flattered that he wanted to do that and we got together and talked about it and then just okay well let's go (laughs) we did it but he would do that he would get so wound up at some of the things I put in the book Um, at one point I killed off a character and (laughs) he immediately called me you killed the Markson boy. I'm like, what? I couldn't believe it when she killed the Markson boy. I was so shocked. Like, what? You killed the Markson boy. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I did. I know he was the secondary character. He was he was the red shirt, you know, for that particular book. Oh, <laughs> so now use that as a euphemism for any su- surprises. He goes, you're going to kill off the Markson boy now? Uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> See. It's but the only thing I can always I can always count on, though, so, you know she killed off the Markson boy, but nothing was going to happen to the cat. You know, Briar is such an animal oh, lover. You yeah. always know that the animals are safe. So yeah, just right. not the people. Right, not the people, right. but the but the animals are safe. So well, and it's we kind will of, it's, we will talk we will talk about that when we start. You know, when we get to uh, the clock people, which will brass clock people, but I was surprised at how many different kinds of animals, you know, were I, in that one. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's, it is it is funny. I mean, even in the first book, I was thinking about it in retrospect, and I didn't realize it at the time, but there's a cat and a dog and a bear and a raccoon. I mean, there are lots of animals in these books. <laughs> No well, unicorns, yeah, though. There's no, no unicorns. unicorns. No, no. Okay, now there's got to be a unicorn story. in one of them. So. One, of, one of the uh, things now, that was one one of the things that I thought was really kind of flattering was apparently one of our readers thought that the animals had a lot of 
personality, and they, they said to me, at a certain point I thought that the animals had been talking, and I went back and went through the pages, and they don't, they, they don't talk. And I said, no, they don't talk. They're just animals, but they do a lot of things, and they yeah. have a lot of personality. So she said it was great because I, I felt like they were talking, but even though they were just kind of doing what dogs and cats might conceive of. Right. Right. Hey, well, yeah. Particularly the Carlisle, the cat. It's you know, it's almost like you know, uh, Mom. Lassie says Timmy's in the well, but it's Carlisle wants you to follow him. Yeah. Well, Carlisle is a cat with a with a direct line to the supernatural. I think. <laughs> I yeah, that's a cat. So now, Whistlegrass, uh, Vermont. Uh, very unusual little community. Is it? based on a real place or is it a compilation or it's what is Whistlebrass? It's, it's kind of a compilation of places. I, I grew up in Binghamton, New York, which is a, a town with a lot of, you know, interesting old houses and I grew up in an old Victorian house and, and I and, and upstate New York has wonderful autumns, you know, with witchy bear trees and pumpkins and red leaves, you know, and things and and so the the falls are and the you know the autumn is wonderful in the Halloween season and I've always loved anything spooky you know old horror movies or comic books or whatever and then I went to college in New England not in Vermont but in Rhode Island to Rhode Island School of Design and Providence Rhode Island is where the H.P. Lovecraft spooky stories oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I used to read those and and so when when we were talking about the town, um, we decided to just invent a town. And I had a friend who had just recently moved to Vermont, and Vermont seemed like such a an idyllic place where nothing bad could happen. I thought, let's make something bad happen there. We thought it seemed like a good place to to put this strange little town in a forgotten corner of Vermont. So it it's so even though it takes place in Vermont it does take there are elements that were inspired by my upbringing in upstate New York and in um New England. Okay. You know the town well, where Jack's yeah. from is where J- uh, Rod Serling is from that same town. Yeah, Rod really? Rod Serling the creator of the Twilight Zone is also from Oh, Vermont. sure. <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> yeah. oh, how fun. And, and, hey, so now, um we're going to in a few minutes we're going to do a station break and then I I was oh, we're going to talk about clock people. But before that, Briar, would you, uh, for those who haven't read um, the Whistle Brass Horror and uh, Storm Watcher, would you give just a little uh, taste of what each of those books is like and who the kids are that we follow through each of the books? Sure, yeah. Well, um, Casey, the young boy, and his sister Pearl, had just moved to Whistlebrass. His father is an archaeology professor, and uh, they're used to traveling all over the world, and now all of a sudden, and living in tents and whatnot, and now they've got a little house, and he's taken a position teaching, and Casey thinks, wow, this is going to be so boring. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't. All of a sudden, there's these really weird things that start happening in the town, and uh, there's a very bizarre monster that uh, surfaces from ancient Native American lore. We kind of made it all up, so we didn't pick one particular tribe. But Casey and uh, the cat and the dog <laughs> have to jump Penny. in. Penny, help. right? Yes. 
Kenny, yes. And that was Jack's dog's name. Um, so in that one, you know, Casey's the one who each each book has the same group of characters, the kids and their friends, but kind of one of the kids takes uh, a step forward or initiative to solve the mystery. So I don't want to give anything away in the book, but that's when they start mm-hmm. to meet all their friends in the town and get together. And there's no huge technology. There's no guns. There's nothing. It's just they have to use their smarts to outwit this supposed god that's been around for centuries and how are they going to do that so that's the fun part about the book and the storm watcher uh title gives you an you know an idea of what's happening in the town these never-ending storms suddenly descend and unearth strange things from the graveyard um and the kids actually have to make friends with the ghosts because they help them defeat the, the bad guy in the book. Um, I don't, again, I don't want to give away too much because it's a huge amount of fun, mm-hmm. but the Storm Watcher is a lot of fun, especially when you figure out what's going on with the kids in that particular book. So they're both, you know, same characters, same place, different kinds of creatures and one of the things Jack and I really focus on is we don't write about characters like a witch or a vampire we create these monsters like brand new no one's ever heard of this or that and so it gives us a chance to build a monstrous character up from the ground so that's what the oh, books are about I hopefully that helped <laughs> to explain yes. that but, uh, they're fun they're a lot of fun they are it, it has well, been Alistair- Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, it has been fun to take these same characters through three books because we've, it's allowed them to develop and change as the, as the stories unroll. Yeah. And, and there, uh, there's definitely a different, in the third one, there's definitely a different um, grouping of the kids, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning. So that was, that was really interesting. Now, Alistair, uh, are you there? For yes, that? I'm here. Yep, I'm ready. All right. So, you're listening to Thorn and Cross on a Night's Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross, Tamara Thorne, and QL Pierce. Uh, you can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com, tamarathorne.com, and qlpierce.com. Uh, you can visit the Thorn and Cross Mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com, or if you tweet, uh, you can find me at, at cross Alistair and Tamara's at, at Tamara Thorne. Um, be sure to visit us on Facebook and check out our Hunter Nights Live page also. Uh, for more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Uh, we are here with Briarly Mitchell and Jack Keeley, authors of the Whistle Brass trilogy, and uh, their third book is just out. And I'm curious about... Um, how do you guys, uh, what if one of you strongly disagrees with something? You talked earlier about uh, <laughs> Briar, Briar killed somebody <laughs> in a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, what if, so what if one of you, what if one of you does something or wants to do something that the other one doesn't agree with? How do you, um, how do you uh, sort out your differences? Gosh, I don't think in, we've in ever general, actually had to do that. Yeah, in general, that right. it hasn't really happened. I mean, we sort of have a general idea of what's going to happen, and um, you know, if it, and and 
I'll make a suggestion or Brian will make a suggestion, and if there seems to be a real reason that it wouldn't work, then the other person voices it. But I I don't think either one of us has the kind of ego that demands that every idea of theirs be put on paper. So we... We, it, it's a it's a pretty congenial arrangement. Yeah, we have to occasionally, uh, you know, for the sake of the story or you know whatever it is, we have to come up with some interesting twists and turns. And if I'm confused about what's going on or I don't know if that's really what the story needs, um, Jack just explains, you know, and we talk about it. So we're. Uh, we get along really easily that way. Right. We haven't had any knockdown, drag out fights. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's always a good sign. <laughs> it is. All right. Well, um, I will read um, the, the little quick um, overview of Clock People, and then um, I understand, Jack, you have a reading prepared for us. Yes, I have a little excerpt that actually Briar had suggested that I think is a good one that sort of gives you a little bit of a taste of the book. Okay. Okay, so um, the whistle brass clock people. In one night, toasters, tools, and vacuum cleaners are stolen, and there was a very strange death. Are these things related? Casey is with his family in England, and his best friend Bobby contacts him with a bizarre story. A gaggle of tiny metal men made from bits and pieces of junk attacked him. Instead of hurting him, though, they destroyed his bike and ran away with the pieces into the sewers below the town. What could be down there? Jack, would you treat us to a reading? (laughs) (laughs) I I would be glad to, yes. yeah, that that kind of gives you a sense of what's happening, and these little strange sightings of these characters that you mentioned continue throughout the book. And um, the the sequence that I'm going to read um, is one in which the the local pharmacist, who's a sort of fussy little old man, is walking home at, in the evening, and uh, he winds up being confronted by some strange characters. He removed an MP3 player from his jacket pocket and slipped slipped on the headphones. Morton was one of the few people in Whistlebrass to have such a modern device. Most of the residents made do with their old radios, but he loved having instant access to operas by Spontini, Cherubini, and Puccini. He made his selection, looked around to be sure no one was within earshot, and began singing along. As usual, his voice faltered when he tried to hit the high C. Darn it, he muttered, this is so annoying. With or without my wife's approval, I am going to commit myself to practicing every single day. I will hit those pesky high notes with style and ace that talent show competition. As he walked down Dalrymple Street and belted out a series of la-la-las, his confidence grew. As he turned onto the town square, he was convinced that the elusive high C was within reach. La, 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 he sang. The night was split by a bong, bong, bong. Startled, Morton covered his ears and closed his eyes. He stepped backwards, tripped over a low fence, and wound up on his back in a brand-new bed of pink begonias. The flowers had just been planted as part of the beautification efforts to ready the square for the upcoming festivities surrounding the rejuvenated town square tower clock. 
Looming high above him was the clock in question. None of the animated figures on the clock had been turned on yet, and an open panel revealed the inner workings of the antique machinery. Well, for heaven's sake, Morton muttered, that old clock hasn't made a sound in years. It's certainly loud enough. He climbed out of the begonias, dusted himself off, and stared up through his thick glasses. The long, heavy hands indicated that it was nine o'clock. Morton pushed a little button on his watch, and the face lit up. Nine on the dot. Apparently, the old tower clock was once again keeping perfect time. The town square grew darker as clouds drifted across the moon. The old street lamps didn't give off much light, and there seemed to be a fog rolling in. He pulled off his glasses and checked the lenses. How silly of me. It's not fog. I smudged my glasses when I fell into that darn flower bed. He fished around in the big pockets of his jacket and pulled out a stethoscope, a compass, um... I'm sorry. He pulled out. He pulled off his glasses and checked the lenses. He, he pulled out, out of his pockets a stethoscope, a compass, a bag of chocolate-covered raisins, and a roll of medical tape, as well as a thermometer. Before finally locating a handkerchief. Why do I carry around all this stuff? He asked himself, with a sigh as he polished his thick lenses. I really need to get more organized. He decided he also needed to get home. It was a little late for a middle-aged man to be wandering around alone, and the deserted town square was quite creepy. Ouch! Morton felt a sharp pain in his ankle, as if it had just been nipped with a pair of needle-nose pliers. He squinted down at his ankle, where a dark shape scuttled back and forth. He yelped as he felt a sharp pain in the calf of his other leg and a tug on his flannel trousers. Something with red eyes was clinging to the fabric and trying to climb up the leg of his trousers. Get off! Get off! The objects in his hands clattered to the ground as he swiped at the creature. It snatched his glasses without losing its grip on his pant leg. Something leapt at him and clutched the sleeve of his jacket with tiny hands. Morton attempted to run towards the drugstore, but more little hands snatched at the laces of his shoes. Off balance and unable to see clearly, he tumbled to the ground. He curled up on the cobblestones and covered his face with hands as chattering creatures swarmed over him like a troop of marauding monkeys. Stop it! Stop it! He cried. Get off me! Something stripped off his wristwatch, his belt, and his shoelaces. Fabric ripped as the overstuffed pockets of his jackets and trousers were torn away. Morton's keychain with its miniature flashlight, his multi-tool pocket knife, his nail clippers, and all the rest of his paraphernalia clattered onto the cobblestones. Dimes and quarters pinged and rolled away. Morton peeked between his fingers and found himself staring into eyes like little red embers. A monstrous little being was staring at him and clutching his MP3 player. Morton immediately rolled up into a ragged ball and clamped his eyes shut, unwilling to get another glimpse of the miniature scavengers. He wasn't sure how long he stayed motionless in the center of the town square, but eventually he realized the ticking and scuffling sounds were gone. He opened his eyes and sat up. He was dirty, his clothes were torn, but he was alone, or almost alone. A cluster of people dressed in black stood on the sidewalk staring at him. Without his glasses, he couldn't see them clearly, but there was something odd about the way they waited and watched. In their dark clothes, they looked like a group of professional mourners. Had they been there the whole time and witnessed the attack? If so, why hadn't they tried to help? Morton decided it was more likely that they had just walked up and found him in a heap and were understandably hesitant to approach. Hello, folks, he said weakly. I just got mugged by a, by a, 
How could he explain what had happened? Once he started going into details about tiny weirdos stealing his stuff, he would appear crazy. Better keep the details to himself. I just got mugged, Morton repeated and left it at that. A man stepped forward. He was tall and thin with an egg-shaped bald head, dark glasses, and a bushy black beard. It was impossible to guess his age. He looked like Humpty Dumpty wearing a disguise. Most unfortunate, sir. Are you injured? The man asked in a lightly accented voice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> so the town is full of strange new guests and visitors and odd little creatures scuttling around, and it, it's it's a lot of fun. Oh, it, it definitely was. Now I I noticed something, um, particularly I I was thinking about it today, and I noticed that the huge storms often play a role. In the whistleblower story, is that an active decision, or does that just develop organically? Storms. Storms. Yeah, the rain. It's almost as if it's uh, part of the setting or part of the character. Well, it, it, I do. Th- I do think. I mean, as I said, you know, having grown up in upstate New York and New England, we had a lot of fabulous thunderstorms, and the weather really was dramatic. And I think having dramatic weather as part of it is it's you know it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to play with and it also you know we Quizzlebrass the town itself is kind of a character in these books and uh-huh. I think the, and I think that the weather of Whistlebrass is part of that. Okay. Okay. Now um again uh the the cat what was the, oh what is the cat's name again? Carlisle. Carlisle shows mm-hmm. up again. Mm-hmm. He does. Yes, Carlisle. Carlisle is definitely. Well, you do canine research and rescue, and you're a committed champion for animals. In yep. Clock People, um, there's a statement in there pretty much for spiders. <laughs> I mean, the spiders are, are and you don't uh, make them cutey or anything because they always, when someone says, are they going to hurt me? You say, well, Hopefully not, or maybe not, or it's never like, no, they're not going to hurt you. You just, you don't know, you know. But, um, you know, a lot of people are afraid of spiders, and it's not the kind of animal that usually is sort of showcased or something. Are there any other misunderstood creatures that might show up in future work? Oh, my gosh, that's a great question. Ah, The spiders were actually Jack's idea, and... uh, the character who has them, her father bred pedigreed spiders. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which added them to the story. And uh, I do, I love all kinds of animals. I think that my favorite, though, are the sharks. But, you know, Jack keeps pointing out to me that Vermont is a landlocked state. So <laughs> I don't know well. what kind of characters might show up, except, you know, possibly a really mad badger. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do think it's fun. You know, when I read Breyer's book, Big Ass Shark, I thought, of course, in Breyer's book, you would feel sympathy for the shark. <laughs> oh. And you know, after Sharknado, I mean, they can be anywhere. Uh-huh. You, know, you never know. Well, that's a good point. And it always storms in Whistlebrass, so yeah, they could come right. in on a big gust to win, or just take the crosstown bus, and there they are. <laughs> there you go. 
I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one of the things that I mentioned earlier that I thought has been fun for me is since we have the same group of kids to watch them change and develop. And one of the supporting characters that was my favorite in the first book was Bootsy Bamberger. And mm-hmm. um, Bootsy in the first book is only mentioned briefly, and she's this really nasty, beautiful junior high school student. And in the second book, she kind of takes a more major role in um, in really helping you know defeat the the evil that has attacked Whistlebrass. And in the third book, we see even more of her personality. And I think you know the the and her and the her good side, if you will, kind of shows through. And I, and I like that in, in the book, mm-hmm. you know, characters, a lot of the characters do change. You know, a timid Casey, who's rather timid in the beginning of the first book, has a lot more self-confidence by the end of the third. And even the villain in the mm-hmm. first book, you know, our villains aren't necessarily all bad, and our heroes aren't necessarily infallible. So I think that makes it fun. But it's 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 been fun to watch them change and develop and, and grow a little bit. You know, on that note, also, you uh, you have um, older characters that are not stereotypical by any means, um, and uh, like the, the little spider lady. The spider, um, yes, our, our little librarian. And I, I, and I do, you know, I, I think it's fun to show people um, doing unexpected things, and, uh-huh. and, and I like, you know... Um, you know, so Miss Arachne Greenweb, who's the spider fancier and librarian, is in her 70s, but she takes an active part in the heroics of the book. Yeah. And, um, which is fun. And I, I, I will not give anything away, but the, um, the uh, Arachne takes a stand was a, a really great moment uh-huh. um, <laughs> in the book. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> so, um Okay, so um, Jack, what illustrator do you think was the great, greatest influence on you, and why? Oh gosh, it's hard to say. Although I think probably early on it would be Aubrey Beardsley with his strange okay. and macabre line drawings, and he was introduced to me initially by uh, my junior high school art teacher, and she knew that I loved cartoons and I loved line drawings and she just thought, you know, the sort of strange, spooky kind of subject matter of Beardsley combined with his very decorative line work would appeal to me and she was right. Okay. And do you when you're about to do the the book, um do you have a finished manuscript? Do you guys get a finished manuscript before you do the art or do you see that in your head or um if you do the, the cover, for example, the covers are similar across the books in that, you know, the the large uh, character in the background and then the silhouettes right. of the kids. And I mean, do you see those covers uh, when you're working on the story or do you wait till it's waiting? Well, we kind of, it, it kind of, um, the first one um, just sort of popped into my head, you know, as a as a total finished piece, the strange spooky face in the clouds and the and the tree. And then and then I wanted to have them appear to be, you know, a series and so then there was a little bit more of a challenge with the other two of how do you create variation 
but have that same effect with the silhouetted kids in the foreground and mm-hmm. the spooky monstrous face in the background. And um, so, uh, you know, with the third book, um, I was working on some of the drawings while we were still writing it, but um, most of it was it was after it was finished. There uh-huh. is a little upfront stuff. I mean, when Jack was working on the cover art for the second book, The Storm Watcher, I was working on the writing, and then I looked at a sketch he sent over to me to look at, and I loved it. But then I said to him, um, they have flashlights <laughs> in the story. The kids didn't. <laughs> so we had to figure out, well, it, they uh, look nice on the cover, so I added yeah, flashlights. <laughs> yeah, but the flashlights looked so nice in the picture that Briar included some flashlights in the story. <laughs> I wrote them in, exactly. <laughs> So, so sometimes something I want to draw does appear in the story for that reason, and then sometimes something that appears in the story winds up appearing in the, in the in the art. Um, it's uh, one of the things that that also I think is I I'm hoping that even I mean, the the books are adventure stories for young people and they're filled with monsters, you know, and but I'm hoping mm-hmm. that in addition to um, young male readers we also get young female readers because they're really the the girls the girl characters in in the books i think really um get to do a lot of heroic things and i think young uh-huh. uh, girl readers would enjoy would enjoy that they really you know they're not victims they they take right. charge and they and they and they take an active role in defeating the evils that are attacking the town now, what is the uh, the age range? I know that it can be all over the place, but what is the the target age range for the series? The, tar- the target age range is kind of young, you know, sort of twelve young teens age range. But mm-hmm. judging by the response we've been getting, it seems like older readers and adults seem to be enjoying them as much as for kids. Sure. And and I kind of think one of the things that ha- has happened, you know, is. The younger readers like the adventure and the monsters, and the older readers appreciate the humor and the wordplay. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, the humor is is very subtle sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think children would bat an eye about somebody having pedigreed spiders, but I uh-huh. think an adult would look at that. And think, well, okay. <laughs> I'm going to wait for that catalog so I can shop for a new spider. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, I have a I have a question that I have to get in. We're going to um, go on to what you're going to be doing next, but it's right early in the book, right up front, and I have to know if blue corn and vinegar pie is a thing, or did you make that up? Right I don't know. Very big- I don't even remember. I think it was a real recipe that we found somewhere. Yeah, I don't cook. If it was, I I don't cook very well, so I don't think it was. It had to have been something out of a New England book that probably Jack had dug up with the recipe. So, um, to answer your question, it is very likely a very real recipe that uh, he found from New England, and we added it to the story. Well, it caught my attention. I was just sitting there thinking, oh, okay, now what is that? You know, it doesn't sound delicious, but, you know, it's like, okay. It's funny how little details like that sometimes stand out. In in, oh, yeah. the, in the second book, um, the there's a we wanted to get rid of um, 
one of the people's husband before the book even begins, and 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 so I mentioned it mentions in the text that he had perished in a tragic badminton accident, and the reason that we picked that was because it was so ludicrous. I mean, who could perish in a tragic badminton accident? But then one of my one of my one of my uh, friends who had read the book said, I want to know more about this character in the tragic badminton accident. And I thought, well, that's yes. another book. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's so, speaking of other books, um, is there a fourth? Is it going to be a four-book trilogy? <laughs> well, <laughs> four-book trilogy. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? It's just, yeah. We I think it's five physics. Yeah, I think we're going to see, you know, how this how, you know, the the how this works out. The the I was really happy with um the way this one ends and I, I had actually come up with an ending and I sent it to Briar and then Briar redid the ending and sent it back to me. I thought, "Oh, this is better." And um but it, it in the end of the in the end of the third book most of the questions that are raised about the town have been answered and the characters seem to have wound up in a good Spot, more or less, mm-hmm. and it it I think it's a satisfying finish to a trilogy. But if the publisher finds that they want to ask us to do more, you know, it could happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we had so well, much fun working together. Well, what? Where's the little sister? Where's Casey's little sister? Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because Briar was talking <laughs> about possible future uh, future plans, and one suggestion I had was. The character of Pearl, who's the little girl, she's for people who haven't read the book, Pearl is five years old, and and she's had some encounters with the supernatural that have definitely left a mark on her. So she's got a, a great awareness of ghosts and strange energies in the air around her. And I said it might be fun if we, in the future, at some point, decided to do a book, to do a book where Pearl is now instead of five, she's now eighteen or twenty-five. You know, Ooh. so it's, yeah. it's you know. A, a, a story that takes place 10 or 15 years after this book and what happened mm-hmm. you know now that pearl has become open to the the world of the supernatural what is her life like you know and where has she moved to cuz you know we um one of my friends said after three books why doesn't this family just move why do they stay in that horrible <laughs> town so but uh, where's the fun in that uh, so but, but we that's, just that's it, an interesting idea so we, we thought, yeah. Well, good. Well, we that that was that was the thought. If we ever did another one, it might be like you know, it would be Pearl and what happens to her as an adult, uh-huh. and you know, her friends among the spirit world, or who knows where it could go. It seems like there's a lot of opportunities for that character. Well, we have a couple of minutes left, so um, if you uh, would let us know what you what you're working on now or what's coming up and where we can find you and, you know, uh, where readers can find you in the book. Uh, I'm working on the sequel to Big Ass Shark right now, and I'm going on another shark dive in uh, March. I'll be doing this one in Florida. And, you know, you actually get on the cage and wave at the sharks. (laughs) So that's what I'm going to be doing. Okay, and Jack. Well, um, I've been I've been doing a lot of drawings. I've been having a lot of fun posting things on Instagram. I have a, a Instagram page. It's Jack.Keely.Illustrator, and I try to put, you know, new drawings every week, um, just for fun. And I I have 
several ideas for new books and new projects. I haven't really been able to force myself to sit down and, and start thwacking away at the typewriter too much or, or the computer or anything. So I, I've been, um, but I've been enjoying, you know, kind of getting back into traditional media, you know, playing with watercolor and just, you know, enjoying um, some artistic experimentation on my own. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, it's been wonderful. What was that? Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> Something's going on with the phone here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Does anybody hear me? We're still here. here. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> we don't know what's going on. That was it sounded like you dunked your head underwater. That was hilarious. Uh, it did. <laughs> like Briar's so already on her shark dive. <laughs> so, so I'm going to uh I'm gonna okay, so before we get before that you guys go, of course it was a, a, a pleasure and you guys are welcome back anytime. We look forward to reading more of your work and having you back. So keep writing, both of you. And uh, before we let you go, could you just uh, let the listeners know where the best places are to find you and your work and what you do? Uh, you can go to briarmitchell.com. I have all kinds of information there, and the books are available, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, most of the places you can find books, and they are available in print as well as digital. All right. Kindle. And and I too have a I have jackkeely.com and there also actually is a whistlebrass.com website with a little bit of information and a few pieces of art on it and there's there are links to places where you can get the books. Um, uh, so for people who are people who want to track them down, um, they might want to start by going to whistlebrass.com. Oh nice! All right. Well, again, you guys are you wonderful. Guys, Thank you for yeah. having us on the yes, show. Yes, it was great. Thank you. Have best great. time with you. Oh, you guys are great. Too. Yeah, we love having you. And again, you're welcome back anytime. So thank, thank you. you for being on, and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Q, for hosting. And uh, until next week, we wish you a haunted nights, sweet screams. <laughs> And be sure to check under the bed before you turn off the light. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next week. Bye. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. <laughs>